Finally, I met with Dr. Brad Call to discuss more lymphoma papers. And to begin, he commented on Abstract 689, a single-arm Phase two trial evaluating the use of the so-called R-squared CHOP regimen as initial treatment for aggressive B-cell lymphomas. This was a paper that came from the group at the Mayo Clinic, and the hypothesis here is that the addition of lenalidomide, when added concurrently to R-CHOP chemotherapy, would improve complete response rates and progression-free survival and ultimately overall survival in patients with previously untreated diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. Single-agent lenalidomide has some activity in relapsed diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, a response rate of around 30%, and that activity appears to be more robust in the patients who have the ABC cell of origin subtype as opposed to the GCB cell of origin subtype. And that's an important thing to remember when analyzing this paper. So the group at the Mayo Clinic did a decent-sized phase 2 study where they combined lenalidomide with R-CHOP. And the way the lenalidomide was given was 25 milligrams orally each day on days 1 through 10 of each 21-day R-CHOP treatment cycle. And they treated 51 patients. From a toxicity standpoint, looking at their data, it does seem like the addition of lenalidomide does increase the grade 3, 4 neutropenia by a modest amount and the grade 3, 4 thrombocytopenia by a modest amount. But this didn't translate into any serious adverse events for the patients. The rate of febrile neutropenia wasn't any higher or there weren't any significant bleeding complications. So from an efficacy standpoint, they generated some impressive results. The overall response rate was 98% and 83% were complete responses, which is a very good number. Their patients tended to be a little bit older than you see in some of the frontline large cell studies, so it definitely was not an overly favorable patient population in this phase two study. And when they look at their progression-free survival at one year, it's right around 75%. So they went back to one of their databases and they pulled out some historical controls where they matched it for age and IPI score and other key factors, and they plotted this well, they call it R-squared CHOP. R-squared, the second R is lenalidomide. So they plotted the R-squared CHOP versus R-CHOP, and there is a nice difference in the progression-free survival, and there's a benefit for the R-squared CHOP. And then they went back and looked at their results by cell of origin. So they did immunohistochemistry, figured out which patients were the GCB type and which were the non-GCB type. And where it appears the addition of lenalidomide is making the most impact is on these non-GCB or i.e. ABC cell of origin patients. So all consistent with their hypothesis. We're very interested in this result in the Eastern Cooperative Oncology Group, and we have now designed a very large randomized phase two study based on these results. It'll be over 200 patients, and we will enroll untreated diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, and patients will be randomized to R-squared CHOP or R-CHOP. And we will do cell of origin subtyping on all the patients, and we'll analyze the outcomes by cell of origin. But you're not going to stratify them by cell of origin? Well, we're not going to stratify. The problem is a practical one. For the cell of origin call, we want to do gene expression profiling, which you have to get the paraffin material, and it just takes time. So there isn't enough time to get the cell of origin call in each patient before you need to start their treatment. But we will look at the data about halfway through to make sure we're getting adequate numbers of ABC and GCB in each of the arms. I think it seems like an important 
trial. I'm really glad that you all are moving forward with it. What about the other oral presentation on the combination of lenalidomide and RCHOP903 for the Italian study? So yeah, there was another study looking at the addition of lenalidomide to RCHOP from an Italian group, and this was a phase two study done over there. This trial was limited to older patients with diffuse large B cell over the age of 60, and they again combined the lenalidomide concurrently with the RCHOP, although the dose and schedule was slightly different. They gave 15 milligrams a day on days one through 14 of each 21-day cycle, and they had 49 patients in their trial, and the results were very similar to the Mayo group. Very high complete response rate of 86% and um, 18-month progression-free survival of 75%, which does look better than historical controls. So, again, more evidence that this addition of lenalidomide could be a beneficial addition to an RCHOP backbone. Obviously, randomized trials are going to have to answer this definitively, but such trials are planned and And actually, the one I mentioned in ECOG, the trial is written and just undergoing through some fine-tuning and review, but should be ready to roll out to our sites in just a couple months here. Sounds like a really attractive trial. Another big story that came out of ASH in general were small molecule B-cell receptor inhibitors. And I think the one that got the most attention was ibrutinib, but Bruton's tyrosine kinase inhibitor. What do you think about the oral presentation 686, looking at this in diffuse large B-cell? So I'm sure a lot of the folks listening to this have heard of abrutinib, which is this oral BTK inhibitor, and this is really one of the most dynamite drugs that we've seen in lymphoid malignancies, you know, possibly ever. There's a lot of histology-specific activity to the drug. The drug is incredibly active in CLL, SLL, and it's incredibly active in mantle cell, Its activity in diseases like follicular is less well-defined right now. And then in large cell lymphoma, it appears to have activity that's selective based on the cell of origin subtyping. And so that was the basis of this presentation from Wyndham Wilson, an investigator at the NCI. And this was a multi-center trial looking at this oral BTK inhibitor abrutinib in relapsed refractory diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. And if you look at the whole population of patients enrolled in this study, 70 patients enrolled in this multi-center phase two study, and the overall activity of ibrutinib in unselected large cell was not that impressive. But when you then separate the patients out by cell of origin subtype, the ABC type patients had an overall response rate of 40%, whereas the GCB type patients had an overall response rate of 5%. So here's an example where having a better understanding of the biology of a disease will allow, I think, us to make more rational selections about what kind of patients would be most appropriate for these targeted agents. And it seems pretty apparent that abrutinib has preferential activity in the ABC type of diffuse large B cell lymphoma over the GCB type. And that has implications in this relapse refractory trial, but it also has implications for what kind of trials you might want to do if you were to initiate a brutinib in a frontline study, say in combination with RCHOP or with dose-adjusted EPOC. Do you have any personal clinical experience with ebrutinib? I do have some experience with mantle cell, and I've seen just tremendous responses in mantle cell that have been highly durable. That's maybe the most impressive thing about abrutinib to me, and maybe where it starts to separate itself a little bit from maybe even the PI3 kinase inhibitors. 
the response rates are a little higher, but they actually, at least so far, seem to be a little more durable. And obviously the durability is a huge factor. You know, when you're using a molecularly targeted compound that's just hitting one spot in one pathway, it's not totally surprising to see the cancer cell population start to develop resistance, presumably by some bypass mechanisms after patients have been on that drug for six, nine, 12 months. And we see that a lot with the targeted agents, but I'm incredibly impressed with the durability of the responses to abrutinib, particularly in CLL, SLL, but also in mantle cell. The toxicities there are diarrhea, a little bit of fluid retention, fatigue. We hear patients report on that. Mostly these are manageable side effects, and there aren't too many patients that actually have to stop the agents because of these toxicities, which is a great thing. Let's talk a little bit about mantle cell. How about abstract 902 looking at BR compared with RCVP and then our CHOP first-line trial, the BRIGHT study? Yeah, the BRIGHT study. So that was an eagerly anticipated study, and this was a North American version of the so-called Rummel study. That was the study from the STILL group in Germany, and this BRIGHT trial was comparing BR, bendamustine rituximab, to either CHOP-R or CVP-R. So if you're a site participating in this trial, you would identify a patient, and then you would say, I think if I was treating them off-study, I'd give them our CHOP or I'd give them our CVP, and then you'd register the patient, so then they would be randomized to whichever you had selected, either our CHOP or our CVP, or to the BR regimen. And then for the analysis, the our CHOP and the our CVP data are pooled together, and that's compared against BR. So again, kind of, as you said, sort of similar question to the German STILL trial that was presented at the plenary session at ASCO this year. Exactly. And the patient population is untreated indolent lymphoma or untreated mantle cell lymphoma. And this was a pretty big trial. I had over 400 patients. Now, the vast majority of these patients had indolent lymphoma, but there was a handful of patients who had mantle cell lymphoma. The trial was designed as a so-called non-inferiority study. They just wanted to show that BR was no worse than RCHOP or RCVP. And that's exactly what the trial showed. The BR was not inferior to RCHOP or RCVP when you look at the whole patients all mixed together. And then naturally they did analysis by histologic subtype where they separated out the indolent lymphoma patients from the mantle cell patients. And there's a lot of interesting findings in this study. Number one... BR was no worse than RCHOP, but unlike Rummel's study or the STILL study, BR was not better than RCHOP in indolent lymphoma. They actually looked pretty comparable for the response rates and the progression-free survival, so I'd call it a tie. And the toxicity profile ended up being kind of a trade-off, where with BR, there was more GI toxicity, more nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, things like that, and there was more rash. Whereas the patients who received RCHOP or RCVP, they had more alopecia, they had more neutropenia, the RCHOP patients had more mucositis. So kind of a toxicity trade-off, I would call it. And from an efficacy standpoint, BR looked very comparable to the RCHOP, RCVP arm in indolent lymphoma. Now in mantle cell, the BR regimen looked quite a bit better than the CHOP-R, RCVP, if you just look at the complete response rate, which was the primary endpoint of the study, the complete response rate, the complete response rate to BR in the mantle cell patients was 51%, 
and it was 24% in the RCHOP RCVP patients. So that's where you're seeing some nice differential activity. And this trial, along with the STILL trial, gives me a lot of confidence that BR is a better platform or a better backbone in mantle cell than CHOP-R is. I think the jury is still out in, say, follicular or other indolent histologies. We have the STILL trial saying BR looks quite a bit more efficacious, and then we have this trial saying they look roughly comparable. In either scenario, I'm still very comfortable giving my patients frontline BR because it certainly is no worse than our CHOP. There's no alopecia, which I think is attractive for patients, and it allows one to save the anthracycline that comes in the CHOP for later should the patient transform at some later date. So, you know, in 2013, when I have a new follicular patient walk in the door or a new older mantle cell patient walk in the door, I'm generally recommending to them a BR induction therapy. I think we do need some long-term follow-up on BR and toxicity. We need to have a better understanding of what it does to your bone marrow reserve in the long run. We need to have a better understanding of how easy or how hard it is to get stem cells should patients need a stem cell transplant down the road. So I don't think we have all the answers to BR, and I'm definitely watching the long-term toxicities from BR very closely as this story emerges. So it's kind of surprising what you were saying about the GI toxicity with bendamustine for BR. Do you see that in your own practice? I do. So I actually wasn't surprised when I saw this bright study data Because in my mind, there had always been a little bit of a disconnect with the data from the STILL trial and what I saw in my own practice in terms of toxicity. I definitely have patients getting BR who report more difficulty with nausea, more difficulty with diarrhea than I see with RCHOP. And I've seen that consistently over the past few years. And I see a little bit more myelosuppression with BR than what you see reported in the STILL study, particularly in terms of delayed myelosuppression, thrombocytopenia, or neutropenia that's still hanging around, you know, 21, 28 days later. So for me, when I saw the toxicity from the BRIGHT study, that is what I was expecting to see. I'm curious for your thoughts about your presentation from ASH, Abstract 153, an ECOG study looking at mantle cell VCR, CVAD with maintenance R. So this paper was a study that we conducted in ECOG over the past few years, and this was really born out of some pilot work we had done at the University of Wisconsin. We had developed the so-called modified hyper-CVAD regimen, And then trying to build upon that, we had added bortezomib into the chemotherapy backbone, and hence the name VCR-CVAD. And once we had piloted that for safety at Wisconsin, we took it to ECOG, and we ran a large phase two study, and that's what we reported at ASH. This trial was for patients with untreated mantle cell lymphoma, and all patients received this VCR-CVAD induction regimen. So it's the modified hyper-CVAD chemotherapy backbone which means there's no Part B, or or another way of saying it is there's no methotrexate cytarabine component. And then patients receive bortezomib with each modified hyper-CVAD induction. And the bortezomib was given at a dose of 1.3 milligrams per square meter on days one and four of each 21-day cycle. And the primary endpoint of our study was the complete response rate to this induction regimen. 
And from a toxicity standpoint, the toxicities are right in line with what we would have expected in terms of myelosuppression and things like that. We were a little worried about the neuropathy because we're combining bortezomib with vincristine in that regimen, but I'm happy to report we had no grade 3, 4 peripheral neuropathy in the study. And our complete response rate was 68% in the entire group of patients that we enrolled, but there were a few patients who weren't completely restaged because the treating physician didn't get an end-of-study bone marrow evaluation. So when we looked at the group of patients who were fully restaged and had all the end-of-treatment tests done, the complete response rate was 80%. So 68% is a good number, and 80% is a great number, so we thought that that was encouraging. And then I thought what was really interesting about the trial was what we did afterwards, after patients completed the induction. We knew that there was a kind of a trend in the U.S. where when physicians have younger mantle cell patients, they tend to give intensive therapies. And so we gave treating physicians the option of taking their patients to an autologous stem cell transplant consolidation, but that was kind of an off-protocol option. And for folks who opted to stay on protocol, they would receive maintenance rituximab for two years. So the on-protocol option is two years of maintenance rituximab, and the off-study option is go get an autologous stem cell transplant. So we ended up with 44 patients who received the maintenance rituximab and 22 patients who received the stem cell transplant. And so just for fun, you know, we looked at the data to see how did those two groups compare. And what's really interesting to me is that the patients who received the maintenance rituximab are doing just as well as the patients who received autologous stem cell transplant with 73% progression-free at two years So it sort of raises a provocative, interesting question, I think, of whether there might be some non-intensive strategies that could perform just as well as intensive strategies for patients with mantle cell lymphoma. So in terms of maintenance for tuximab and mantle cell, I know ECOG has a trial looking at R versus R squared as maintenance, I think for two years, yet the European trial that defined maintenance R in these patients used it indefinitely or until progression. What went into the two-year decision? So that's a really important unanswered question is what is the optimal duration of maintenance rituximab if you're using that for mantle cell lymphoma? Brings back old memories, huh? (laughs) (laughs) It seems like years ago since you presented Resort. That was last year, wasn't it? That was last year, yeah. And I still don't know the right answer to this question. When we wrote the ECOG study, we wrote it for two years. When I talked to Martin Dreiling, who is the PI of the European study, Even he thinks that two years might be a good stopping point. (laughs) So you just get a variety of opinions on this about what's optimal. What you said is true. The European study continued maintenance to progression, but lots of patients, I think once, if you really look at that data, there are patients who just start to stop the maintenance for whatever reason. They get tired of it or they start to run into trouble with recurrent infections. So even though the trial was designed to get your maintenance until you progress. There are a whole lot of patients who actually don't get it until they progress. And you definitely start to see more hypogammaglobulinemia with prolonged maintenance, and you start to run into more problems with infections. So then I've had some people argue, well, keep the maintenance going, keep the rituximab maintenance going, and just start giving IVIG. And I personally have never been super comfortable with that approach. I typically will stop the maintenance when I have people starting to run into infectious complications. But I know some other folks who will keep the maintenance going and add in monthly IVIG. So there's different strategies there, and I honestly don't know what's better. 
What I'm telling all my patients right now when we start on maintenance is we're going to plan for two years. And two years from now, we'll sit down and talk about it again. <laughs> yeah. Oncologists, I think, have visions of 10 years of tamoxifen dancing in their head nowadays because, you know, 15 years after the NCI said stop at five years, it was proven that going 10 years is better. So it just takes a really long time to tease these things out. Yeah. So we were talking about ibrutinib, but what about ibrutinib and mantle cell abstract 904? So this paper was the results from a multi-center trial looking at single-agent abrutinib for relapsed refractory mantle cell. And this was presented by Michael Wang, who's a mantle cell expert at the MD Anderson Cancer Center. And this was a phase two study that was done in multiple centers. And at the time of this report, there were 115 patients that were reported on by Michael. And like we're seeing with in CLL, SLL, and in some of the other diseases, the activity of abrutinib in mantle cell is just fantastic. In this cohort, the overall response rate is close to 70%. And when you look at durability, the durability is, again, very impressive. If you look at response duration at 12 months, 60% of patients are still in their remission. It's very interesting to me when you compare these progression-free survival curves across the different histologies with these different targeted agents. So just to give you a gestalt on this. The responses to me look most durable in CLL-SLL with the brutinib. The curves are holding very near the top. Mantle cell, they're dropping off somewhat faster, but still very impressive with the brutinib. And to my eye, a brutinib looks a little more impressive than, say, the PI3 kinase inhibitors in mantle cell in terms of response rate and response duration. And then the responses are a little less frequent and a little less durable when you get into other histologies like diffuse large B cell. And we just don't have enough experience in follicular yet with the brute nib because there's only about 16 patients treated. But I think it's fair to say, based on this presentation that Michael Wang gave at ASH, that a brute nib is a fantastic drug in mantle cell lymphoma with this response rate of 70% and the majority of patients still holding that response at 12 months. And we clearly have some incredibly exciting options for mantle cell lymphoma that just weren't available a few years ago. You know, right now, all we have for relapse disease that's approved is bortezomib. And when bortezomib came out about five, six, seven years ago, we all thought that was this tremendous breakthrough. And it was at the time. But if you look at the data, this agent, abrutinib, looks about twice as effective as bortezomib does in this patient population. So let's finish out with one of my favorite topics, T-cell lymphoma. Just kidding. One of the toughest topics. But I see a couple papers here on brentuximab vidotin, which look pretty interesting. One abstract 60 in ALCL. I'm happy to talk about the brentuximab vidotin administered concurrently with multi-agent chemotherapy as frontline treatment for CD30-positive mature T-cell lymphomas. This was a small phase two study that was presented by Michelle Finale, who is an investigator at MD Anderson. And the idea here was to add brentuximab vidotin to CHOP-based chemotherapy, although what they did in this trial was they took the vincristine out of the CHOP, so it's CHP chemotherapy, then with the addition of BV, which is brentuximab vidotin. And I think most of the folks know that brentuximab is this drug antibody conjugate. The antibody targets the CD30 antigen, which is present on Hodgkin lymphoma, present on all cases of anaplastic large cell lymphoma, and then present on a proportion of cases with T-cell lymphoma. And what's not known right now is how important is the degree of CD30 expression 
that's an unknown. What if you have a T-cell lymphoma that just has a hint of CD30 positivity? Is that a bad thing? Are you better to have a lot of CD30 positivity? So that's an unknown, and there's going to be a lot of investigation the next couple years to try to get to the bottom of that question. But in this trial, if you had anaplastic large cell or a CD30 positive T-cell, you're eligible. Then you'd receive the CHP chemotherapy combined with brentuximab vidotin. The brentuximab vidotin is given at a dose of 1.8 milligrams per kilogram every 21 days with the chemotherapy. And even though it's a small study, I think these results are just incredibly impressive. The overall response rate was 100%, and the complete response rate was 88%. And, you know, these T-cell lymphomas are a notoriously difficult group of cancers to treat and deal with. And when we give CHOP chemotherapy, we don't expect to see responses in all people, and we certainly don't expect to see a complete response rate at 90%. You know, usually when you look at the literature for CHOP, in T-cell lymphomas, you expect mm, an overall response rate of maybe 80% and a complete response rate of maybe 40%. So to see 100% and 88%, even though it's a very small study, is highly encouraging. And Rightly so, the maker of this compound is excited by this data, and they have initiated a very large international randomized phase 3 study in this patient population. So this will be for patients with newly diagnosed T-cell lymphoma that expresses CD30 or who have an anaplastic large cell lymphoma, which all express CD30. And patients will be randomized to CHOP chemotherapy or CHP plus BV chemotherapy and that international randomized phase three trial is just getting underway around the world, and it represents a real opportunity to move the field forward in a big way for that group of patients. And, you know, another trial that to me would be really attractive for a patient to go into. It kind of almost reminds me of the old adjuvant trastuzumab trials, you know, a trial where you kind of figure it's pretty little chance they're going to do worse and a real good theoretical chance they might do better. It's very attractive. Right. I think. I agree.